Well, thanks for coming, and uh, this is uh, just uh, one of about 60 stops on a national tour that we're doing on the occasion of the publication of the paperback uh, edition of uh, this book. Uh, we are near the tail end of a month of travel, and so uh, I probably am showing the wear and tear. Amy is much more resilient and tireless, and I'm... I'm uh, honored uh, to be here working with her. We got up, at, I think, at about 3 a.m. after a late event with KPFK last night to produce the show this morning. Um, but uh, it's uh, always always great to be here in L.A. Is it dinner time now? Yeah, it's... Uh, it's great to be here in L.A. and, and, and Skylight Books as well. I think, I think the genesis was, you know, a Amy was invited to be on Bill Maher a few years ago. And on these tours, you have to be constantly working. And Amy is, insists on constantly working. So, like, it's my task to help find things to do. And I'm like, well, we can't do a book event on Friday night because of the, the, the TV show. But maybe we could do something midday. And Skylight Books was very amenable to doing something at noon. And uh, you, you all can see see yourselves, uh, it's, it's a great opportunity to bring people together. And that's really what I think. Part of the book is uh, it's a tool for bringing people together. We use it uh, for fundraisers, for stations like KPFK around the country. And, um, and it also is a document that we hope serves to explain the work that we do, share the stories that we try to cover uh, every day. And that's really is embedded in the subtitle covering the movements, changing America, about social movements, about actual news, not the fake news and not the, uh, you know, the... So speaking of fake news, as Amy mentioned earlier when she was just speaking uh, with uh, KPFK's uh, Jerry Quickly, uh, they actually did a recording of about a 20-minute interview earlier in the hour here. Uh, the LA Weekly has, has uh, is furthering a uh, false news story that I'm married to Amy Goodman. Uh, I have a very understanding wife in Colorado, uh, and she's uh, Amy was at my wedding, but uh, we're not married. But the, and that's uh, and my wife actually does refer to her as my work wife. So I guess, but it's a, such a trivial detail, uh, and I only mention that because the 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 guy. Uh, who who went and gave the the this event a nice listing in the LA Weekly said it had no mention of our marital status in the listing that he submitted to the editors. So someone someone uh, went through the extra mile late at night to to insert that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so anyway, it's a. Uh, but to travel with Amy, to work with Amy, it's been a real life-changing event for, uh, experience for me. Um, and just very briefly, I started listening to the show on its first summer of broadcast in 1996. I was uh, living on an island owned uh, by the family of Buckminster Fuller off the coast of Maine as a caretaker and commuted to shore for groceries and the like with a sea kayak. It was about six miles and another three miles to a dist another island for the access to a payphone. So it didn't have any um, anything digital or anything, but did have a radio access to one of the first nine stations that carried Democracy Now! in that first year broadcast, WERU, out of Blue Hill, Maine. And uh, that gave me a glimpse into the wider world connection to the news that's so vital uh, for an engaged uh, person. And uh, after that, continued following the show in 1990. It kind of led to, as I think it does for many people, an inspiration to get more involved with activism and uh, joined a group that it was organized 
authorizing a shutdown of the WTO meeting in Seattle in 1999. Um, that protest was uh, ultimately successful in shutting down the meeting. It was kind of going to be the capstone of Bill Clinton's kind of corporate globalization crusade in the 90s, and the WTO meeting in Seattle was, was the focus of a major protest. And there was, in that nonviolent direct action, um, and it was kind of set the stage for the, the 2000 Democratic National Convention here in L.A., where you saw a lot of the same people and a lot of the same tactics uh, aimed at, at uh, challenging the corporate power structure. The... Um, that protest, there were a lot of working groups in the organizational structure, uh, and uh, you know the blockades, the the, the the recon, the jail support, the all the different interesting facets of a major protest. No one wanted to join the working group on uh, on mainstream media outreach and public press relations. So I joined that very unpopular working group and ended up kind of basically confirming the suspicion that the corporate media was going to do a horrible job covering the protest, uh, focusing on some of the sensational aspects of it, some of the property damage, ignoring the police violence by and large, um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, just harping on the impact on Christmas sales and things like that. So the, uh, the protest was dismally covered in the corporate press, but it juxtaposed that with the independent media that was emerging in the kind of the, the web 1.0, uh, IndieMedia.org was a website that was set up specifically to provide alternative news coverage to the WTO protest, and uh, it got more hits uh, during the week of protest than CNN.com. And then you had programs like Democracy Now! And it was at the Independent Media Center that was set up in Seattle in 1999 to cover the protests where I met Amy and Juan and Jeremy Scahill. And they did such exemplary work uh, during that week of protests, and really, it was a... I, uh, you know, continued uh, with that, you know, trajectory was helping um, uh, someone deemed a political prisoner by Amnesty International to this day. I noticed there were some folks canvassing for Amnesty outside, and Amnesty uh, has identified Leonard Peltier as a political prisoner, American Indian Movement member, uh, who's been in prison for now over 40 years, and uh, in, there was a big campaign in the late 90s to gain executive clemency from Bill Clinton for him, and Clinton famously abused uh, his power of executive clemency and also ignored Peltier's very well-supported, globally-supported uh, appeal for that that uh, release from prison. So after that uh, campaign and after Clinton left, left office, the, the folks running the Leonard Peltier Defense Com Committee in Lawrence, Kansas, were a very small group of dedicated activists and needed and deserved a break. And so I went out to Lawrence to help keep the Peltier Defense Committee uh, active and going for about six months, during which time uh, I had a daily phone call with Leonard every morning and would visit him in the Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary every week. Uh, and we were kind of keeping, you know, the, the strategy, shifting gears, moving forward into, you know, what does a political prisoner do to help uh, shepherd his freedom uh, during the early days of the Bush years. And uh, obviously, uh, he remains there today. So it's a difficult, difficult uh, organizing challenge. But in those uh, phone calls that I had with Leonard, almost every day he would open up with a conversation, a question, did you listen to Amy this morning? <laughs> and that's because 
KKFI Community Radio in Kansas City, Missouri, carries Democracy Now! It's live at 7 a.m. Central Time. And uh, Leonard, and as he said, the brothers would hang around, would circle around a small transistor radio in the prison yard and listen to that show for the full hour and then be forced off to work in one of the prison industries uh, throughout the day. But that connection, again, to the wider world, to the news and information provided on Democracy Now!, as Leonard told me himself, was such a vital connection to, to the world at large, especially those people in prison you know, in one of the most oppressive environments in, in our society uh, who have no access to the, or limited at best access to internet and uh, certainly um, needed and benefited from that community radio station and, and, the, and access to democracy now. Uh, we did a benefit a few years ago for a sister station to KPFK in Atlanta. WRFG, Radio Free Georgia. And if you've spent time in Georgia, you know there's not a lot of KPFK-style stations out there. Uh, so anyway, Radio Free, WRFG uh, was uh, doing a pledge drive and, uh, and told us that they had gotten uh, a contribution. It was about a $330 contribution, which is generous on any level, but the fact that it came from 65 $5 donations from uh, prisoners in the U.S. Federal Penitentiary in Atlanta, one of the worst maximum security prisons in the country, most violent uh, and oppressive environments. And the folks, the prisoners there, 65 of them pulled their donations together and actually made a call into the pledge room uh, from the prison to make that pledge and, and, and mailed in their money. So it was you know, another thanking again, WRFG, for their in part for, for bringing democracy now through the, through the prison walls uh, to, those, to, those, you know, that, to them. And then you know, just two years ago, we got a call from a, a guy in the UK, I'd say probably a progressive administrator of a prison uh, educational programs. And there he, um, he asked for permission to run democracy now in its televised version. He, he kind of programmed a uh, closed circuit TV system throughout the prison and or several prisons in the UK. And so we immediately gave him unlimited permission to run the show. Uh, that's exactly the kind of, uh, kind of free use that we hope is made of the program. And a year after he began running the show, he contacted us and said they had a 50% increase in the participation in the educational and vocational programs in the prison. And when asked, those prisoners uh, said they did it largely because of something they had heard on Democracy Now! Uh, and so the, I bring this up not only because it inspires us to hear these stories and to continue the work, but also to remember that, you know, as we do all have, you know, what Julian Assange calls uh, personal government tracking devices in our pocket, uh, the cell phones with the instant access to information, uh, we have to remember those who live on the other side of prison walls or on the other side of the digital divide or on the other side of an international border who don't have such ready access to the news and information, the culture, the programming of stations like KPFK. Uh, we're going to be distributing these flyers around. If you haven't gotten one, we're actually having some printed because we, uh, we've run out. And distributing the clipboard, that's, again, an analog device. The clipboard, old-school organizing tool as an old-school or organizer. Uh, 
the clipboard is our daily digest. It's an opt-in to get a me- an email every day with our news. It's also how we contact you and a broad audience of people if we need to. You know, there's a page or two in the book that summarizes police run-ins that Amy's had over the course of her career, and it's really only a snapshot. And it really doesn't, uh, and it isn't to kind of celebrate or minimize such encounters. It's unfortunate that journalists uh, have to suffer such uh, threats just for doing this important work. Uh, and Amy has never blanched uh, in the face. It's really, uh, I've learned a lot uh, from watching her deal with uh, people who've been given uh, you know, uh, positions of authority, whether they've earned it or not. Uh, and it's usually backed up with with weaponry, uh, and she doesn't uh, doesn't uh, in any way shirk or, or, or is not intimidated at all by these people, and it's it's been really inspirational. And so, uh, so that. Sign-up sheet, in part, allows us to, to have a rapid response mailing list, email list, uh, should Amy or one of our journalists get uh, in, in, have their work intruded upon by the authorities, whether they're detained, as Amy was with Sharif Abdel-Kadus and Nicole Salazar in 2008 in the Twin Cities covering the Republican National Convention, uh, or, or, or beyond. So anyway, that's the clipboard where we'll be signing books uh, until uh, we have to... Uh, get into the famous local traffic system uh, and make our way to Santa Barbara. We're going to do a benefit for a new low-power FM station there, KZAA, uh, licensed to La Casa de la Raza, and also for KCSB, which I have to always trumpet was the uh, station. It's a community college station in Santa Barbara where a young man got his start broadcasting, and uh, he was kicked off the air for saying something considered controversial. His, he demanded representation by the ACLU. He got The ACLU defended him. He was restored to his position on the airwaves. And he went on to have a, what, what has proved to be a very lucrative career, and, and that was Sean Hannity. So he got his, he got his start uh, on, a, on, a KC, on KCSB, and he's only maintained his, his tenure as a broadcaster, thanks to the reviled ACLU. So uh, we'll be doing a benefit. Despite that history, we still love KCSB, and we'll be doing that benefit tonight. So that's where we're off to next. So uh, to um, tell you more, here's an esteemed colleague, my friend and work wife, Amy Goodman. This is beautiful. <clears throat> you know, <laughs> you know. I knew that a tree grew in Brooklyn, but I didn't realize that they're out here in California. No, actually, just the opposite. You know, we woke up at three o'clock this morning, and <clears throat> we're over at the TV studio by I don't know three thirty four. And these TV studios where we work, because we're not only on the radio on KPFK, but we're on public television all over. We're on 1,400 stations now, so we're on KCET. We're on Link TV, which it's affiliated with on satellite TV all over the country. 
We're on KLCS, and by the way, which is public television here, Channel 58 and 58.1, um, and... <clears throat> You have flyers. For some of you who I signed the books to already, I gave you clumps of flyers. It's not because they just got clumped together. Give them out to friends. Yes, that's the old-fashioned way. Of course, post on Facebook um, and everywhere else. Spread through social media um, that democracy now exists and what they can discover. A friend here said he's been clean for a year and a half off meth because of democracy now, which deeply inspired me. I don't know... I hope that uh, he didn't replace one addiction with another, which is, and the other thing is, you know, last night we spoke at the Emanuel Presbyterian Church, as we do every year, and we were in the Unitarian Church in Burlington, Vermont, and the Presbyterian Church in Berkeley, California, and, you know, I don't know how I end up in so many churches. I think it is because uh, listeners and viewers always come up and say, I follow you religiously, and I got... (laughs) I got the wrong message, but um, I do hope you give gobs of these away. It lets people know where they can get independent media, but Skylight Books has now become a tradition, and it's like a home away from home for us uh, to come here to be grounded in Los Angeles, and this morning when we got into the studio, you know, it's a green screen, so you can go back and look at Democracy Now! today at democracynow.org, and you'll see, I say, from Los Angeles, this is Democracy Now! Now, I just see green, green paint behind me, but you see palm trees, (laughs) and so at some point in the show, the cameraman flipped the video screen so I could see myself, um... And I was, where are those because I just see green but on this screen what everyone else sees and I, I haven't seen any palm trees because we haven't exactly had a little time to stop and smell the coffee at all but it has been truly wonderful and inspiring uh, to go around this country to meet so many people who are deeply concerned about the fate of the planet I really do think that those who are concerned about war and peace, those who are concerned about the growing inequality between the rich and the rest of us, those who are concerned about economic and racial justice, who are concerned about LGBTQ equality, those who are concerned about climate change, the fate of the planet, are not a fringe minority, not even a silent majority, but the silenced majority, silenced by the corporate media, which is why we have to take the media back. Um, I'm so excited to continue to be on KPFK um, every morning, 6. We actually broadcast at 5, um, but it goes on the air at 6 and 9, 90.7 FM, uh, as well as 93.7 FM. Um, And to be a part of this really historic institution. And I was saying to Jerry, I'm so glad Jerry's back. Last night, Sonali was part of our program. Sonali Kohatkar is back with Rising Up. Um, This is so important to have these strong independent media institutions and the history they come out of. On Mother's Day, we're celebrating KPFA, the first Pacifica station, 1949, almost 70 years old. Um, And it was founded by a war resistance 
sister named Lou Hill, who came out of the detention camps and said, there's got to be a media outlet that's not run by corporations that profit from war, but run by journalists and artists. And that's how Pacifico was born. KPFK, 10 years later, 1959. Uh, our station in New York, 1960, WBAI, WPFW in Washington, just turned 40. Um, and KPFT in Houston, 1970, it went on the air. Um, and then it was blown off the air by the Ku Klux Klan. And that's what I was talking about earlier. They strapped dynamite to the base of the transmitter and blew it to smithereens. And went, it was right in the middle of Arlo Guthrie singing Alice's Restaurant. And I thought that was a good song. But... Um, <laughs> So they get back on their feet, they rebuild the station, transmitters back up in a few weeks, and the Klan straps 15 times the dynamite to the transmitter, and they blow it up again. And now it's really serious. It takes many months to get back on the air. And in January of 71... Arlo Guthrie came back to Houston to finish his song live on the air. Alice's Restaurant was complete, and KPFT has been broadcasting ever since. And I can't remember if it was the Grand Dragon or the Exalted Cyclops, because I often confuse their titles. But he said it was his proudest act. I think that's because he understood how dangerous Pacific is, dangerous independent media is, dangerous because it allows people to speak for themselves. And when you hear someone speaking from their own experience, whether it's a Palestinian child or an Israeli grandmother, whether it is a native elder from the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota, or an uncle in Afghanistan, who, which is now experiencing the longest war in U.S. history, and President Trump promises to make it ever longer with thousands of more troops on the ground in Afghanistan. When you hear people speaking from their own experience, I'm not saying you will agree with them. Um, how often do we agree with our family members? But it makes it much less likely that you'll want to destroy them. I think the media can be the greatest force for peace on earth. Instead, all too often, it is wielded as a weapon of war, which is why we have to take the media back. So... This journey has been amazing. Oh, two weeks ago we were in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and um, I had the great honor of doing a public interview with Noam Chomsky at the First Parish Church. And you can check out in democracynow.org that amazing event. We played it two days later, but also here at Skylight. Uh, we have the first interview we did with Noam, not first ever, um, do you know that Noam like, wrote his first treatise against fascism? I think it was about the Spanish Civil War. I think like in 19, something like 38 when he was 10 years old. <laughs> I, I just thought I'd share that with you. Not to make anyone feel um, <laughs> inadequate in any way. Okay, because I sure don't, you know. <laughs> Ten years old. Um, so anyway, but we have this great DVD, um, which is the interview that Juan Gonzalez and I did with Noam just like two weeks before when Noam was in New York. He's 88 years old right now. Um, 
My <clears throat> Noam always makes me think family when I see him. My parents and Noam uh, went to camp together growing up. Um, but this interview we're making available to you if you get two copies of the book. And now you don't have to get any copies, although I'm sure uh, Skylight Books would love you to get a couple copies. Um, and, you know, we want to support these independent spaces. Skylight Books is an oasis of dissent. And dissent is what will save us. Um, Two copies, why else would you get them? Father's Day is coming up, and maybe you forgot your Mother's Day gift. It's a good thing to honor your mother or the mother and someone you care about. And also that, did you forget to give your mother a gift? It's a very good thing to do. Oh, Grandma, yes, yes, yes. But that's your mother's fault, because that's your mother. Okay. Um, um, No, but... uh, It also helps it get it on the New York Times bestseller list. Now, um, why does that matter? I just want to talk to you about the politics of bestseller lists. If you get on a list like that, and it's pretty hard to do, you then, the book is taken by libraries, by universities, by prisons. Um, It's just more likely it will get out into the ether. And so many bookstores, and I can tell you this traveling around, are not like Skylight. And by the way, now I understand why it's called what it is. And before, when I was getting, was baking here, I I was saying, could someone turn off the light? And I thought, oh, suddenly I felt like Donald Trump, like, like, turn off the sun, please. I'm sure we could do that. And then I realized, oh, that's a Skylight, and that is the name. Okay, I get it. Um, But um, the New York Times bestseller list, so many bookstores are not like Skylight. They only stock the bestsellers. And many good people go into them. They don't realize that. And it is a roadmap, a book like this, to a whole other universe that ends up taking you to places like this, hearing places like KPFK and KCET, uh, Link TV, and um, all the wonderful... I would not say alternative media. I would say all of this is mainstream. All of this is mainstream. Don't let them fool you when they beat the drums for war. And just so that's why it's really great to be able to get on these lists. Oh, and then there's another little thing. The Times doesn't like to talk about democracy now very much, only occasionally. Like once, Brian Stelter, who's now on CNN but was at the New York Times, um, he did a profile on democracy now. It was an amazing story, and uh, that was wonderful. Um, but they don't like to talk about democracy now generally. Uh, so we named the book Democracy Now, and if it got on the list, well, it would just have to appear because of a mathematical equation, because they're not fake news, right? So they just have to report that that book is there. Uh, But most importantly is that idea. Just the reason why Dennis and I, not my husband, but my wonderful esteemed colleague and friend, why Dennis and I write a column every week together for Hearst, for King Features, to get into what's called the mainstream uh, newspapers and websites of this country so that people discover you are not alone. You are not crazy. In fact, you've got so much company. The majority of people um, 
I think, very much share your values. So what gives me that feeling? And what gives me that hope? Right before we were in Cambridge with Nome, um, our first stop was where Dennis lives in Denver. And we did this big fundraiser for the local community radio, KGNU, for Denver Open Media, which is public access. Denver PBS also runs Democracy Now!, as does, um, oh, oh, Free Speech TV is based in Denver. And then we were doing a fundraiser as well, all these stations, and Colorado Independent, a great investigative news website in Colorado. And we were at the Su Teatro Performing Arts Center, wonderful Latino community center. And we did this event, and the next day we went over to the Unitarian Church so that I could actually meet Jeanette Vizquera. Jeanette is a Mexican immigrant. She's been here for like over 20 years, hard-working, law-abiding mother of for her oldest, she's in her 20s, and she's, she's DACA. She's a dreamer. She can legally work, live, study here. And Jeanette uh, got scared after Donald Trump was elected because Danielle Ramirez in Washington State was arrested. He was iced. He was picked up by ICE. And Danielle was a dreamer. He was legally allowed to be here in this country. Why was he picked up? Could you imagine the chill that sends through communities of millions of people in this country? If a person who is legally allowed to stay is picked up, what happens to the 11 million undocumented in this country? You know, very clear message that President Trump very explicitly wants to send. In this period now, since his inauguration, far more people have been deported. And I can't tell you how much that means because President Obama was called, even by his closest immigrant rights supporters inside and outside the White House, the deporter-in-chief. He deported millions and millions of immigrants. And Donald Trump has far surpassed him. Can you imagine the fear in so many communities. And by the way, I know some of you can imagine that fear. I'm sure there are many people here who do not have the proper papers, but who are law-abiding residents who make this place great, who make America great again. Um, And we need a forum... For everyone to talk to each other. That is the power of independent media so we can hear each other's voices and figure out how we are all going to live on this planet, make it a better place, live in a sustainable, real way together. Um, And so I went and saw Jeanette. And she had taken refuge in the church. It was Saturday morning, and her kids were just waking up. As we were doing the interview, Roberto is coming into the room, wiping the sleeve out of his eyes. He was 10 years old, a feather of a boy. He goes to the Denver Public Schools, speaks perfect English. He's an American citizen. (coughs) His little sister, Zuri is six, and she climbs on her mother's lap. Dennis is filming, and... They were going off to a Cesar Chavez march that day. And (coughs) Roberto was holding a sign that his teacher had made. It was a lithograph of his mother, Jeanette, of her face. Beautiful Mayan features. And in the bottom it said something like keeping families together. And he was holding this, and he had his arm around his mother. He was standing, she was sitting. 
and he kept tight hold uh, of her tightly. And he said, we're going to go out to this march today. I'm going to take my little sister, but my mother can't come because if she steps foot outside the church, she could be arrested. He said, so I am my mother's voice. So we went back to New York, and um, we broadcast that interview. And then the next day, Time Magazine, like two days later, announced the 100 most important people in the world. Jeanette Vizgata was among them. And... So she holds a news conference at the church. She can't step foot outside, and she's holding up her 2016 tax returns. And she says, you know, anyone's free to see them. Um, and I challenge the President of the United States to do the same. Um, but in the church, uh, she talked about the death threats against her while she was in the church. And I said, so what gives you hope? And she said, oh, because there's so many more people, thousands of people who express their support. You know, she reminded me of Isabel Allende, the great writer who wrote a House of the Spirits and so many other wonderful books, who lives in the Bay Area, is Chilean. And she had once said, you know, for every paramilitary death squad thug, there are thousands of compañeras and compañeros who are there to support each other, to be there for each other. That's the hope. And that's what Jeanette was saying. And she was saying, you know, the Denver police chief told her he had her back when he heard about the death threats. Call me if there's any problem, he said. Uh, the Denver mayor has her back. The congressman from Denver, uh, Jared Polis, has her back. It's an amazing story what's happening. The level of resistance at every level of society. Juan Gonzalez and I, I'm going to talk a little more about Juan in a minute, the great Juan Gonzalez, journalist from New York. We've been co-hosting together for full 21 years of Democracy Now! And um, Juan... And I went to this meeting a couple months ago, downtown Manhattan, nondescript office building inside. Hundreds of people had gathered, not your typical noble activists uh, who go out onto the streets, not that anyone is typical, but they were elected leaders from all over the country. I mean city council members, um, state legislators, mayors, public officials packing this room to talk about how can they provide sanctuary to the residents of their community. How can they work together to resist what's happening in Washington, D.C. today? It was absolutely amazing. Never assume someone's position based on the position that they have. It is so important to recognize this. So, for example... Who is there? Gregorio Casar, who is the youngest ever Austin City Council member, who just got arrested protesting Governor uh, Abbott's uh, signing of the ant fierce anti-immigrant bill that would outlaw sanctuaries. Uh, the governor in Texas has taken on, oh, the sheriff of Austin, Sally Hernandez, um, threatening her, threatening off to cut off funds to the Capitol. And yet people are united and they are fighting back. So... Last year when I was on this tour, uh, Juan was being feted all over New York because he retired from the New York Daily News after 29 years. And 
as I was traveling, I was getting all these pictures of his parties. And uh, at one of them, like the Francis Tavern is this historic tavern in downtown Manhattan. The Daily News threw this party for him. And I get a picture, you know, Mayor de Blasio leaving the party and Governor Cuomo coming to the party. They won't be in the same room because they hate each other. Um, And then, you know, the Senator Chuck Schumer. And I'm going, like, Ron, what did you do wrong? Like, you're not supposed to be feted by public officials. We're supposed to hold them accountable. But then I realized, um, no, they were coming to see with their own eyes to verify that this man who had dogged them for decades was actually, in fact, leaving the scene. (laughs) But, of course, he's not because, though, he left the New York Daily News. He stays with his other DN, which is Democracy Now. And he teaches at Rutgers. So, um, speaking of which, you have Jeanette Vizguera, who took refuge in the church. Time Gala, New York, she can't go, right, because she is going to be rested if she steps foot outside. So the community throws a Time Gala for her in the church. And we showed the pictures. And the next day, uh, that morning in Denver, you know, I can't arrest her there, really. I mean, we'll see what happens in the coming months in the uh, these sanctuary churches. So the next day, they arrest Arturo Garcia. Or, um, Arturo Hernandez Garcia. He had taken refuge in that church two years before I knew him because I went to interview him in the church under Obama, and he didn't leave till he got a Department of Homeland Security letter that said, you are not a priority for deportation. And then he felt he wanted to act in good faith, send a message to the millions of people who are undocumented to say you can come out of the shadows. He continued to work with his brother-in-law in their tile business. He was married, lived here for more than a decade with his children and his wife. And uh, he was arrested, picked up off the street as he was heading to work. They couldn't get Jeanette, so they get Arturo. And they were both immigrants' rights activists. And so we interviewed a young woman from the AFSC named Jennifer Piper. And she called us. She said, what are you doing? You know he has a letter that says he's not a priority for deportation. And they said, it's a new era now, and we have no priorities. Very unusual way to put it. Um, So Arturo's in jail. Jeanette's in the church. We were speaking at the Burlington um, Unitarian Church, and I saw Zuli Palacios and Kike Balcazar. They're immigrants' rights activists who are working in the dairy farms of Vermont, like 1,500 of them that supply dairy to places, companies like Ben & Jerry's, to ensure that people have fair working conditions and fair pay. And a few weeks ago, they were picked up and they were held for almost two weeks. They were not deported, though their colleague was, I think because of the tremendous outcry. Um, oh, does resistance make a difference? And Juan, I said, is at Rutgers, and a young woman named Karame Andujar, who is a very popular Rutgers student, who is a spokesperson for Undocu Rutgers, um, she gets a email or call that says she has to show up for an ICE interview. She's a dreamer. Why does she have to show up? And so that sent just terror through all communities. And everyone from, you know, from fellow students to Senator Cory Booker to the university were all up in arms about this. So one interviewed her last week. We played the interview the next day as she was going into the ICE interview. Is the Trump administration hunting down immigrants' rights activists? 
because you hunt down someone who is more high level, what hope does anyone else have? I was talking to a Baltimore city councilman. He said in some schools, 20 to 30% of the kids are not showing up. Their parent, and they're not even necessary undocumented, but their parents are terrified that they'll be taken. And then you see the vicious cycle. Uh, attendance drops in a school. It starts to drop in federal aid. It is this vicious cycle that undermines the most vulnerable communities in our country, and that doesn't make any of us safer. When people are afraid, and this is a direct issue that you can talk to anyone across the political spectrum about, if you care about national security, you do not want a situation where a community shuts in on itself. If someone, if they're someone breaks into your home, you want to be able to call the police and say, please help me. But if you are afraid, you are not going to call because you're afraid they're going to arrest you. If you are a victim of domestic violence, you're going to be afraid. This doesn't make any of us safer. <clears throat> so, Juan in addition to being feted all over New York, was inducted into the New York Journalism Hall of Fame last year with, oh, Charlie Rose and Leslie Stahl and New York Times, Max Frankel and others. But he was the first Latino journalist to be inducted. And, <clears throat> you know, Juan is a... One of the founders of the Young Lords, the sort of Puerto Rican equivalent of the Black Panthers. Um, he led the Daily News strike many decades ago. Such an important figure around social change and important grassroots journalism in our country. And as he was inducted, we all went to this Midtown Manhattan ceremony. You know, the New York Times had a table, CBS had a table, Wall Street Journal had a table, Democracy Now! had two tables. <laughs> And Juan's speech put everyone else to shame. He said, I figured my modest contribution, as he talked of his quarter of a century as a columnist, my modest contribution would be not writing about outcast neighborhoods, but from them, not simply to entertain, but to change, not after the fact, but before it, when coverage could still make a difference. He said, I've tried to use as many of my columns as possible to probe the injustices visited upon the powerless. Yes, the rich and famous are also victims on occasion, but they have so many politicians, lobbyists, lawyers, gossip columnists, and even editorial writers ready to jump to their defense that they'll always do fine without my help. Juan said, I prefer the desperate unknown reader who comes to me because he or she has gone everywhere else and no one will listen. More often than not, I come across unexpected gems, human beings whose tragedies illuminate the landscape and whose courage hopefully inspires the reader to believe that there is indeed some greater good served by a free press than just chronicling or influencing the ouster of one group of politicians by another. And I think that philosophy, that approach very much embodies what we do at Democracy Now! And so I want to talk about... <clears throat> I want to talk about the standoff at Standing Rock. Um, last April 1st, in North Dakota, along the Cannonball River, a woman named LaDonna Brave Bull Allard opened her home, her property, to the resistance. Uh, LaDonna Brave Bull Allard is the unofficial historian of the Standing Rock Sioux. She is a descendant of Sitting Bull. They opened her home to the resistance. Well, the resistance 
are the people who resist the $3.8 billion Dakota Access Pipeline that would snake its way from North Dakota, taking fracked oil from the back and oil fields, to South Dakota through Iowa, Illinois, hook up with a pipeline to the Gulf of Mexico. And they said no. No, they weren't alone. Uh, the people of Bismarck, the capital, North Dakota, they said no. And this private oil this private pipeline company owned by Energy Transfer Partners respected. They, people of the capital didn't want that pipeline there. And the people of Mandan, North Dakota, said no. So it wasn't put there. But the Native Americans were not so lucky. And so they began to resist. First at Sacred Stone Camp of Ladonna's. And then there were so many people coming to North Dakota that they had to open one after another after another of these resistance camps. Thousands of people. And um, it was truly amazing. It was this historic gathering. This historic unification of largest unification of Native American tribes in decades in this country. from Latin America, from the United States, from Canada, the First Nations, and many non-Native allies. They were protesting <clears throat> the desecration of their sacred land and the possibility that the Missouri River, that it would tunnel under, um, could be polluted, could be contaminated. The Missouri River, the longest river in North America that provides water to some 17 million people downstream. The people don't call themselves protesters. They call themselves water protectors. So thousands gathered. This was building steam. And don't forget, this is just last April, a year ago. This is all through the 2016 presidential election. Do you think in the general election debates, those the moderators, uh, I think maybe it's more accurate to call them media personalities than journalists, you know, did one of them ask a candidate about climate change, let alone Dakota Access Pipeline, about climate change. The issue that concerns every one of us here deeply impacts all populations all over the planet. You know, democracy now goes to all the climate summits. We were in Copenhagen 2009, then Cancun, then Durban, then Doha, then oh, Poland, then Peru, then Paris. Um, and the reason we go is because the people, not inside these halls, but outside, thousands come from the most vulnerable places on earth, like the Maldives, a 15-year-old boy in Copenhagen stares into her camera and says, you will drown my country. The people of sub-Saharan Africa says, you are cooking our continent. And it matters because we here in the United States are the historically greatest greenhouse gas emitter on earth. We have a responsibility. And what better time to raise that than during a presidential election that will determine who will occupy the most powerful position on earth. And so the people in North Dakota gathered, they protested, and we went there in La on Labor Day weekend. The team of us, Dennis, um, John Hamilton, our videographer, and Laura Gottesdiener, our producer, who's on this wild ride of a, a tour across the country uh, today. <clears throat> and we got there on a Friday afternoon, the Friday before Labor Day weekend, 
And a judge was going to rule the next week <clears throat> in the case of the Standing Rock Sioux versus uh, the Justice Department. And he had asked the Standing Rock Sioux, if you say this is sacred land, you got to give me a map that shows me this, approves this. So they made a map for him, and he gave it over to Energy Transfer Partners. When we got there, I mean, these protests, how to describe them to you, people walking down the back rural roads, prairie roads of North Dakota, hundreds of people, they often stop with a water ceremony. Then they'll hold up a glass of water, and they are met by a fully militarized sheriff's department. I mean, they have MRAPs and tanks. They're hit by massive amounts of tear gas. They're arrested. Um, You have the native elders, the women, saying, holding up water and saying, this is for you, not just for us. This is to protect your children, not just ours. Why are you protecting... Why are you only protecting the Coda Access Pipeline? What about us? So we documented all of this. And on Saturday, people were going to the area they designate on the map to plant their native tribe, their native flags. And they didn't know that DAPL, the Dakota Access Pipeline, was going to be excavating that day because it was a weekend, holiday weekend. And they come up on the property, and these huge bulldozers are there. And these bulldozers had been way down the road. They believed they leapfrogged over from where they were to the site designated on the map that they designated, and the judge had given their map to the company. And they believed that the company was going to destroy the sacred mounds on the ground that changed the facts on the ground. So next week it would be a moot point when the judge ruled. And they were furious. And it was first a woman and a child and then more women and then men and girls and boys all coming up on the property and saying to the bulldozers, go back. And more and more people came from the resistance camps. And do you understand how brave this is? These are massive machines that are churning the earth to stand in front of them. It made me think back to March 16th, 2003, three days before the U.S. invaded Iraq, but it was another place in the Middle East. It was Raha in Gaza. And it was a young American woman who went to Evergreen College in Olympia, where we just were last Saturday, um, named Rachel Corey. And she'd gone to Gaza with International Solidarity Movement to stand in solidarity with Palestinians. And she befriended a Palestinian pharmacist family, M. Israeli military um, brought a bulldozer in front of his house and she stood there with other activists and she donned one of those orange fluorescent vests that construction workers wear and she stood in front of the bulldozer and it crushed her to death. So that's what I thought of as I was looking at these women standing in front of the bulldozers but this time In North Dakota, they prevailed, and the bulldozers pulled back. And one, two, three, four, five, six bulldozers pulling back. And it was then that the guards of the Dakota Access Pipeline unleashed attack dogs on the Native Americans. This is 2017. And the dogs were biting 
the water protectors, and even the dogs would pull back, and the guards would throw them into the crowd. They'd bite their way out. We interviewed people who were bitten, who were bleeding. We showed a dog with its mouth and nose dripping with blood. But the people succeeded that day. Injured, wounded, but they prevailed, and the bulldozers pulled back. Even the guards left after a period. And we took this video, we posted on Facebook, within 24, 48 hours, there were more than 14 million views. I mean, this... This gives the lie to the corporate media saying, you know, we give the people what they want, and they're not interested in those issues. You may want them to be, but they're not. Not true. If you let people know what's going on, people care. And that's why it was so important to show the images on the ground. So, you know, we interviewed Winona LaDuke the day of the dogs. Winona, who is from the White Earth Reservation, great indigenous rights leader, when White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota, she had pitched her teepee in the Red Warrior camp. It's emblazoned with all these endangered animals around it. And she said, Governor Dalrymple, he was the governor of North Dakota, Governor Dalrymple, you are not George Wallace. This is not Alabama. This is not 1965. We are through. So we went back to New York. We continued to investigate all this. That week, President Obama was in Asia. I did that historic trip to Laos. And at the end of that trip, he held a democracy forum for young Asian students all over the region. And the last question was asked by a Malaysian young woman. And she raised her hand. She said, President Obama, what about the Dakota Access Pipeline? No American journalist had dared to ask President Obama publicly about this epic struggle. It took this young Malaysian student who is coming to a forum to learn about democracy from the President of the United States. And President Obama held forth eloquently about the oppression of Native peoples for centuries, and then he actually kind of addressed this issue. He said, as for the Dakota Access Pipeline, I'd have to get back to my team on that, he said. He did come back to the U.S. that week, and he reportedly saw the video of the dogs. And the significance of that attack was not lost on the first African-American president of this country. So that was midweek. The end of the week, um, judge is going to rule on Friday, Dalrymple calls out the National Guard. Um, and it didn't look good for the tribe. Oh, also the authorities uh, quietly issued an arrest warrant for me, but I didn't know that at the time. So Friday at 5, the judge rules, total routing of the tribe, terrible decision for the tribe. Um, Justice Department, Obama's, prevails over the tribe. But 15 minutes later, um, those same folks, the lawyers of the Justice Department, who were going to pop their champagne corks because they had won, an unprecedented letter came out of Justice, Interior, and the Army Corps of Engineers saying they were going to slow down. So the Justice Department trumped the Justice Department even before Trump became president. <laughs> but um, <coughs> it was a big deal. They said they're going to slow down. They're not going to grant the permit right away. They're going to look at whether natives had input. They're going to look at whether there was an environmental impact statement. So things were looking up. Um, oh, and that day, that Friday, uh, Nermeen Sheikh and I, uh, co-host of Democracy Now!, uh, we went to Canada. We weren't fleeing. Um, LAUGHTER we were invited to the Toronto International Film Festival to speak after the premiere 
of a film about the muckraking journalist I.F. Stone. You know, he's the one who taught young people, if you're going to remember two words, remember governments lie. If you can remember three words, remember all governments lie. And um, that's the name of the documentary. You should all see it. And it also features Democracy Now! in the modern-day independent media organizations. Uh, also, Matt Taibbi of Rolling Stone. So Matt came up, too, and we all went to Toronto. And I wanted to go because I know they care about First Nations in Canada, and um, I felt it was really critical to just having been there a few days before to talk about the standoff. Next day, I'm speaking at University of Toronto, along with my colleagues, and I'm giving a speech then, and um, I have this annoying habit of always checking to see what's happened, like what is Donald Trump going to say today? Did he say it? Um, uh, and anyway, I looked down, but this is before he was president. I looked down, and a text had just come in that said, you're under arrest. Now, I mean, it, it said, like, no, wait. It said, there's an arrest warrant out for you. So I was speaking. Do you ever <clears throat> try to do this? You are speaking. You're trying to make sense, but you're also trying to figure out your whole life plan at that moment at the same time. So I was going, okay, is this a scam? And so, folks, I think, but I don't want to say anything because this is very serious. So I'm thinking, okay, arrest warrant. Is this a scam? Uh, well, there's a North Dakota number there. Maybe it isn't. It turned out it was a North Dakota lawyer. And so I couldn't really keep operating on these two tracks. So I just said, could someone call me a cab? Because, you see, if there's an arrest warrant for you, um, I mean, it's not like you're going to be picked up automatically. But if you have interaction with the police or the FBI or border agents and they see the arrest warrant in the system, you're going to be taken. And I have to go over the border. And I'm thinking, can they really stop me from going home? Um, but, or, you know, just take you. So if I could get to the airport without saying much of anything and get home before the arrest warrant goes into the system. And I did. Okay, so I come back to New York. I didn't take this arrest warrant personally. I really did think it was a message to all journalists. Do not come to North Dakota, which is why we all needed to go to North Dakota. And I also wanted to send a message to young reporters, young people who wanted to document what was happening. This is epic. And I wanted to let them know, I mean... You know, they can't afford to go to jail. They don't have the resources. They don't have the institutional backing. That you don't have to get a record when you put things on the record. And so we returned to North Dakota a few weeks later. Same team, Laura, John, Dennis, and I. And, um, you know, we were going to call the bluff of the authorities. As we landed in Bismarck, uh, the prosecutor announced he was going to quash the arrest warrant. He had dropped the charges. Oh, but he was going to charge me anew with more serious charges of riot, for which I faced a year in jail. Riot? I'm standing in the airport. Riot? Like I'm a one-woman riot? Move over, late-night comedians. So... 
Okay, so I called my North Dakota lawyer, not that I had a North Dakota lawyer before, and I said, I, I don't understand, what does this mean? And he said, well, you're going to be arraigned at 1.30 on Monday. This is Friday afternoon. Okay, so we have two days to cover the protests. But also, I said, well, is this really just automatically going to happen? He said, yes, this is how it works. I said, there's no person who's going to, you know, there's no pressure point here, there's nothing that's going to happen before, between now and then. He said, well... Yeah, the judge signs off. It's absolute rubber stamp. He signs off on all of these, but they, the judge uses their discretion later in a trial or whatever. So wait a second. A judge? A judge is involved? He said, it's automatic. I said, no, this is the difference between us mere mortals and judges. They have discretion at every point. Lawyers, well, not really at... Give me the name of the judge, please. And so we put out a press release, and we said that this judge would be deciding on whether the charges uh, would hold for me to be arraigned on Monday. And needless to say, it was getting a lot of attention, right? A reporter is about to be arrested. And we covered the protests over the weekend. On Monday morning, the show must go on, so we were in North Dakota, so we got a satellite truck from Minneapolis, and we broadcast in front of the Mandan courthouse in jail. And then after the show, I turned myself in. So um, we were on the church property across the street, and the backdrop was the courthouse, the jail, and the Ten Commandments in between. So we started the show at 7 in the morning, North Dakota time. Um, I was interviewing uh, Dave Archambault, the 45th tribal chairman of the Standing Rock Sioux. Like, you know, President Trump is the 45th president of the United States. Dave Archambault. And I asked him... Have you ever been arrested? And he said a few months ago, yes, in the civil disobedience, I was arrested. He said it was my first time at low-level misdemeanor charge. And um, I said, and what happened? And so he said, oh, I was strip-searched. I was put in an orange jumpsuit, and I was jailed. Low-level misdemeanor. Um, then uh, I interviewed Dr. Sarah Jumping Eagle, the pediatrician of the reservation. She cares about the children's health. And... Um, she was one of the first to be arrested. Low-level civil disobedience misdemeanor. And I said to her, what happened? And she said, I was strip-searched, I was put in an orange jumpsuit, and I was jailed. I mean, the humiliation of a people. You know, I was at one point at one of the airports in Bismarck, and a guy came up to me, I was reading a magazine or something, and uh, he said, don't think I don't know who you are. And I said, oh, really? Well, who are you? And he said, I was one of the guards at the site on Labor Day weekend. I said, oh, really? Did you unleash the attack dogs? He said, no. We, there, he said, there were several companies that were employed by the Dakota Access Pipeline. We did not know this other company had dogs. We were as shocked as anyone was. And um, he said, you don't think I get it. We sick attack dogs on them after massacring them for hundreds of years, I understand why they're angry. You know, again, never assume someone's position based on their position. So um, <clears throat> we did the show. <clears throat> We're now the hours are turning toward 1.30. Hundreds of Native Americans are coming to perform ceremonies, show their support. Police are lining up across the street. We're counting down to 1.30. All the media is now covering this. I mean, the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, homepage of the BBC uh, internationally, Al Jazeera, Vogue magazine. <laughs> I have to spiff up my act. Um, 
And I get a call from a host at North Dakota Public Radio right before 1.30, and he says, um, the judge isn't going to sign off on the charges. You're not going to be arraigned today. You know, he knew all the players for decades. Uh, and as we were interviewing people there, we saw that a number of Native Americans who were facing felony and misdemeanor charges that day also had their charges dropped. This is the power of the media spotlight when it is shined in the right direction. I am... I am all for reality television, just not the kind Donald Trump stars in or they present on television, but the actual media that shows the reality of people's lives on the ground. And I will just end by saying, um, our first book was called Exception to the Rulers, and that should be the motto of all the media. We are the exception to the rulers. The second book was called Static. And the reason we called it that is in this high-tech digital age with high-def television and um, digital radio, all we get is static. That veil of distortion and lies and misrepresentations and half-truths when what we need the media to give us is the dictionary definition of static. Criticism, opposition, unwanted interference. We need a media that covers power, not covers for power. We need a media that is the fourth estate, not for the state. And we need a media that covers the movements that create static and make history. Democracy now. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.